this morning. I wonder if you could turn with me to the reading that we had, Luke chapter 12. And I'm particularly addressing those uh, who perhaps are visiting today. Maybe that's an unfamiliar thing to do, to turn to the Bible. It's on page 1045 and it would be a great help if you could turn there because I'm going to try and explain this passage and I hope that uh, you won't so much take away what I say this morning but you will take away this little passage that Jesus Christ teaches in this parable. So Luke chapter 12 and verse 13, top left there, we're going to look at that passage. And before we do that, I'm just going to say a short prayer. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for the Bible. Please help me to teach it clearly and please speak to each one of us this morning in the very depths of our being. And we ask this for our sake and the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I do not know what is wrong with me, but I find myself constantly reading the most inane things. I do hope you spend your reading time slightly more profitably than I do. Here, for example, and I don't know how I started reading this, is a list of lost property that was handed in at British Rail depots last year. Anyone read this? Good, well, you're sensible people. I found myself reading this, and at the top of the list, to my amazement, was a human brain, which was apparently left by a medical student on an away day. I don't know what you'd call that. Maybe that's the ultimate in absent-mindedness. I don't know. But it makes interesting reading this list. The other things on it are a pair of stuffed gerbils, a glass eye, a motorcycle, and a wooden leg. And the mind boggles to wonder whether the same person left them all on the train. Well, by contrast, I'd very much like you to uh, uh, use your minds this morning. Henry Ford said, thinking is probably the hardest work there is, which is the reason why so few of us engage in it. But could you put your mind to this question this morning? Here it is. Do you think that you are a successful person? Do you think you're a successful person? And I'm not saying have you been in the past, or do you think that you will be, but right now, at this point in time, would you consider yourself to be successful? And I suppose as we think about that, there'd be a whole range of people here. There'd be some fairly certain they are successful. There'd be others who've been put down so often, they'd say, well, look, you know, I I don't think I am. And I guess most of us would be mucking around somewhere in the middle. But the question is, of course, what would constitute success as far as you're concerned? What would constitute success... And there comes before us, in this part of the Bible this morning, a man who from every perspective would have been considered successful. And yet here's the issue, God's judgment on him was that he was a dismal failure. A dismal failure. Let's have a look. Can we see the climax of the passage, verse 20? But God, the creator of the universe, said to him, You fool. So that's his obituary, written by his creator. Two words. What an epitaph. You fool. And interestingly, the word in in the Greek here uh, is actually a word that literally means for fool, without thought. It means without using your brain. Now, it's not that he didn't think he did. He made plans, he sat down, he thought and thought and thought about what he was actually going to do. His mind time was filled with this stuff. He was thinking and thinking and thinking. But he didn't think about the right things. He didn't think about the really important things in life. So let's just, if we can this morning, think about the dividing things that constitute success and failure in this story and I hope there'll be much to ponder. 
for you. Now, it's a striking story. It had to be. Can we see chapter 12 in front of us there? Jesus has been speaking about the things of God. People should be riveted. He's been talking about eternity. The Bible says God has set eternity into our hearts. We have a longing for eternity. This life isn't enough. And Jesus has been speaking about it. Verse 2, I wonder if you can uh, see it there. It's a bit like Maximus, gladiator. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Jesus says there's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed. That's pretty striking, if it were true. Verse 5. Fear him, who after the killing of the body has power to throw you into hell. Well, that phrase should at least get our attention. Verse 8. He warns us that eternity, the future, belongs to this figure, the Son of Man. So, this figure, the Son of Man, whoever he is, holds eternity in the palm of his hands. And people are listening, thinking, could this be true? And then suddenly, bang! There's a massive interruption. And a guy shouts, can we see verse 13? Someone in the crowd shouted, look, I don't care about these supernatural spiritual things, just shut up about this pie in the sky when you die, forget about eternity. And do you see what he says? Teacher, tell my wretched, he doesn't say that, but he means it, tell my wretched brother to divide the inheritance with me. So here are two brothers falling out for good over the will. I don't know if it happens in Edinburgh. I can tell you it happens in London. It's amazing how people can fall out. And here are two brothers, they're falling out over who's going to get granny's sideboard and clock. That's what's happening, isn't it? I was involved with a funeral. I'm not kidding, it's extraordinary. I was involved with a funeral where one of the children of the family removed the possessions they wanted from the parental home during the funeral. Can I tell you, I observed that behaviour like that annoys people. That was what I observed. And if you're involved in such things, can I say, don't do it. It's annoying to your siblings, as far as I could see. So this man is absorbed with possessions and he can't be doing with this spiritual stuff. He's a practical man. And Jesus, having been so rudely interrupted, warns us, and he's got a hit pretty hard, in order to get this guy to rethink. Verse 15, that a man's life, can we see as we look down, does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And then he arrests us with this parable to make this very angry guy put the writ he's got in his pocket to go to court and serve against his own brother, his own brother, back in his pocket and say, look, just, let's, I'm just going to wait and see what the right thing to do is. I'll just, you know, I'll just delay it 24 hours before I go to court. That's what he's doing. So, verse 16, can we see the story? It's going to have to be pretty hard-hitting to get this guy to rethink. We learn that this man, there's this man Jesus speaks of in the parable, is a successful farmer. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. So, this guy knows exactly how to work the EU subsidies. Is that right? The stables have been converted into garages. There are at least three or four family cars. I don't know if down in London where I work, uh, he'd be commuting in from Surrey. I don't know. Edinburgh, it'd be interesting. I mean, where would he live? Barnton? And his children would be at Fetty's or Loretto? And he'd work in Charlotte Square, perhaps, for Murray Holdings. And his wife shops at Harvey Nichols or Jenner's. Is that right? Anyone been to those two places this week? (laughs) See me afterwards. And he drives a Mercedes and, and he eats at the Balmoral or the Caledonian Hotel. I mean, he's got a table at those places. Lunch at one, dinner at the other. And he's got a holiday house on the Isle of Arran. Is that right? If you've got that, see me afterwards. 
And, and he's a member of Muirfield, and then he's got another membership over at Carnoustie when he's feeling brave. And so that's, that's uh, uh, what it's like. And doubtless, if you'd seen him actually driving into Charlotte Square to come to, come to work, you'd have nudged your next-door neighbour and said, you know, he's no fool, that guy. He's no fool. Take his advice. He made a fortune, you know. Everyone else was losing money on the stock exchange. He made money. Remarkable. Didn't just hold on to his money. He made it. Verse 17 and 18. So we see? He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods. So you see, he gets a better harvest than is expected one year, but there's no panic, there's no waste. He's not going to flood the market. He gets out his calculator, he does his sums, he works out the right course of action, and he sees that it's actually worth paying for a massive grain storage mountain to build some huge barns to put the stuff in. Waste not, want not, that's what his mum told him. You see, there's a bigger profit this year and he's not going to let the tax man get hold of it. I'm a clergyman, I can't believe how I let the tax man get hold of it, but this man isn't going to allow it. And he calls in his accountant and he works out how to invest it and then, having planned and worked and planned and worked and planned and thought and thought and given so much mind time, it's amazing because at last he's able to arrive at verse 19. He thought to himself, you've plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. And it's wonderful, you know, because he retires early at 45. And doubtless the uh, uh, Sunday Times magazine would run an article on him in the colour supplement entitled, The Man Who Knew When to Stop. And the rest of us, still flogging in from suburbia or whatever, would read this Sunday afternoons, we'd be sitting there, we'd read about him, we'd go, very wise, very wise. And, and now what he's going to do, you see, is he wants to get down to single figures. And he wants to do it at Carnoustie on the Inward Nine. So he can eat all the time he can get. So he's a member, you see, of Muirfield, but also Carnoustie. He's going to spend his life getting down to single figures. And you see, I, I don't know, the retirement party's come and gone. And uh, he, he, he's there, I don't know, he's probably uh, uh, over on the Isle of Arran. Uh, and it's an amazing uh, place they've got there. And, and all his friends have come in from Edinburgh for this uh, huge uh, Sunday lunch they're organising. And the rest of them have then got a flog back to come back to work. And he's sitting there, it's in the evening, he's out looking over the bay. And he's standing there with a long, cool glass of, what do you think, orange juice perhaps in his, in his hand. And the congratulations from his friends are ringing in his ears and he looks down on a little side table. There are brochures and there are safaris. He's going to go to the Aberdares. He wants to go and see, go up to the Ark there. And Courcheval. I mean, he's not going to get a timeshare. He's going to buy a chalet. Go whenever he wants. And he sits there, he looks at the brochures and he's able to say to himself, you've done it. You've done it. You've, you've plenty laid up for many years Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. And suddenly, there is a searing pain in his chest, aged 45, and he is dead before they get him to intensive care. Verse 40, can we see? It's verse 20, can we see verse 20? But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you prepared for yourself? Well, they hold a memorial service in his honour, I don't know, maybe it's St. Giles's, somewhere like that, I've no idea. 
And doubtless the uh, chairman will say what a loyal servant of the company he was. The trade journal will say what an example he was to his profession. And God will say, you fool. And I've taken funerals of men like this. And at one such funeral, it was very striking because uh, uh, a woman of about 80 years old came up to me and she said, uh, she said, do you know what failure is? And I said, no. She said, failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. Failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. And the money, well, where did all the money go? Well, you see, uh, the lawyers, of course, tidied up quite a lot of it, but actually the rest, the rest went to a son who broke his money, mother's heart, you see, let, let, let's, let, let, let's have a look down, you see, end of verse 20, then who will get what you prepared for yourself? Well, he had this worthless son who liked to surf. Well, that's okay, liking to surf, but he didn't like doing anything else. And he just spent the money following the surf round the world. Broke his mother's heart. Spent it all in 20 years. Just gave himself to that pleasure-seeking. And in terms of the eternal world, he finds himself poverty-stricken. All was lost. And I, I guess the question is, what do you think of the parable? Do you think it might have caused the brother with the writ in his pocket to actually say, do you know, I'm just going to hold on a moment. Just stick it back in my pocket. I'll just have a rethink. I think it would have made him think at least about what's really important in life. And I want to say this guy made two fatal mistakes. And I just want to say, as we consider what constitutes being successful in life, can I put these two mistakes before you this morning from Luke's Gospel? Because I've never met anyone that wants to fail. I'm involved with a homeless work in London where I work. And uh, we have 200 volunteers and many homeless people. There's one who comes in at the Christmas party. He can play Rachmaninoff. And you ask yourself where that dear man's life has taken him that now he's in this state. Others, Cambridge graduates. None of us want to fail in life. We all want to be successful. Well, what were this man's two fatal mistakes? And here's mistake number one, if you're taking notes. Mistake number one is... He lived as though God was not there. He lived as though God wasn't there. Now, we don't know much about this man. We don't know, uh, actually, if he was a good husband or a philanderer. We don't know if he was a good father or he beat his children. All we do know is, end of verse 21, can we see? He was not rich towards God. Now, I don't doubt for a single moment that if you stopped him, particularly in the beauty of this country, if you stopped him and uh, uh, you showed him some of the coastline, and you said, do you believe in God? He just said, yes, of course I do. How else can you explain it? It's absolutely staggering. Go up into the highlands, see the beauty of the lakes up there, the coastline. It's staggeringly beautiful. Of course I believe in God. He believed in God, but he lived as though God wasn't there. You see, he'd have said, uh, back in England, he'd have said, I, 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 I'm not so much C.O.B., Church of England, I'm C. Andy, Christmas and Easter. Just like to go along then, you see. And actually, the issue was, you see, he lives, although he believes in God, he lives as though he's totally self-centred. Please notice the, the words, I, my, or myself, that come in, in verses uh, uh, um, 17 to 19, 11 times. Can we see them? Let's have a look down. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I've no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones. There I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to myself... You see, he thought he was self-sufficient. Actually, he was self-centred. And self-centred people are such a pain, aren't they? They're such a pain. 
Samuel Butler wrote about two incredibly self-centred people, Mr. and Mrs. Carlyle, and he wrote this, how good of God to cause Carlyle and Mrs. Carlyle to marry one another and so make two people miserable instead of four. (laughs) And they're such a pain self-centred people. And this man's absolutely centred on himself. Can you see, he's got treasure, verse 19, plenty of good things. He's got leisure, take life easy. He's got pleasure, eat, drink and be merry. But what about God, the giver of it all? Well, the thing about God, you see, this is the thing about God. God, he's on the back burner. And, And he really does mean at some stage to bring the God thing down to the front. But life's busy. And if you look at the diary, you know, the, the thing about it, it, it's that the, the important is always the enemy of the urgent. But if you really pushed him, because we always make time for what's important to us, we always make time. If you really pushed him, he'd have said, and forgive me because this is sexist, but he'd have said, religion, actually, it's for the wife and children. And I like them to have a bit of religion because it gives them a moral framework. But look at me. I'm a successful person. I don't need that, but I, I'm glad the wife and kids have got it. Now, that's where he's really at. So he lived as if God wasn't there, and God said to him, what a fool you are. Why, why? Because God is there, and God has shown himself. Well, a few years ago, I was uh, on my day off. It was a Saturday, and I went home, and uh, I was uh, asked by my mother who uh, is known affectionately in the family as the Ayatollah. She's totally dominant, my mother. She's the family matriarch. I was asked to babysit uh, the children. My father, by the way, says that uh, he he has only made uh, one independent decision in 47 years of marriage, and that's to recognise Angola as a sovereign state. So if you get asked, you have to do it. And I went home and I was asked to babysit my brother's kids. And there was the whole day, my brother and sister-in-law were at a wedding, my parents were, were, were out, so I was babysitting them. And it just someone should have told me how exhausting it was. We played football, we played cricket, we played rugby, we went to the ducks. Someone should have said to me at bath time, it's helpful if you mostly take your own clothes off at well. I got, I got <laughs> soaked at bath time. Anyway, about sort of five in the afternoon, while her brothers were having a sleep, Lena Joy, the little three-year-old, said she wanted to play a game. I said, Lena, I'd love to play a game. What do you want to play? She said, I'd like to play hide-and-seek, age three. I said, Lena, what are the rules? Now, have you found that? If you're playing games with little ones, you've got to get the rules clear at the start, because otherwise, if there is a ruling in the middle of the game, it tends to go against you. So I said, Lena, what are the rules? And Lena said, it's easy. She said, you shut your eyes, you count to ten, and then you have to come and find me behind the dining room door. I said, Lena, sorry, I got that clear. I shut my eyes, I count to ten. You go and hide behind the dining room door, I come and find you. She said, those are the rules. I said, fine. I shut my eyes, I counted to ten. I said, is Lena underneath the kitchen table? Howls of laughter from behind the dining room door. Is she behind the fridge? Howls of laughter from behind the dining room door. Is she behind the dining room door? She shot out as though she was spring-loaded. I said, what do we do now? She said, I'm going to go and hide under mummy and daddy's bed and you have to come and find me. And as I was playing the game with her, I I gradually realised that Lena has been informed by the rest of the family that her uncle is such a thick idiot that if she does not keep talking, he will not find her. And the thing about hide-and-seek, that the pleasure is not in hiding, it's in being found. And she's afraid she'll be some skeleton underneath mummy and daddy's bed. You see, the reason we speak 
is to be in relationship with people. And God is there and God has spoken to us in the person of his son in the Bible. So he's not hiding. He's speaking and speaking and speaking. And he says to us, what do you think of my son, Jesus Christ? He says, this is the man who, in the Sermon on the Mount, said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then as he was being judicially murdered, cried out, as he was being murdered, Father, forgive them, they know what they do of the people killing him. And God says, what do you think of my son? Who said to a dead girl, tell Etha come, little girl, get up, and she was raised. Who said to a storm, be still, and it was flattened. He says, what do you make of the person of my son? I spoke to a man in Liverpool, and I, I, we were having a chat. He said, I've been looking for God for ten years. And I said, I find that impossible to believe. Because God's revealed himself in the person of Christ. And I know tomorrow evening, for example, if you can make the time, you could come along, join the Christianity Explored course, there'll be a table just for you, ask any question you want and look at the person of Christ. But God said, I've come to meet you. But more than that, he doesn't just say, I've come to meet you, he says, I've actually sent my son to die on the cross so you can be forgiven. So you see, for all the times that we've not treated God as God, for all the times that we've taken the gifts, fun, family, friends, falling in love, food, fitness, for all the times that we've said, actually, God, I'll run my life my own way and you push off, however politely. For all those times, God says, I'm sending my son to die to pay in death and blood so you can get forgiven. And he says, what do you make of that? He actually says there's only one way to hell. The only way you get to hell is if you trample over the cross of Jesus who stands before us this morning and says, don't go to hell, I am paying for your wrongdoing, I'm paying, let me pay, I'm blocking the way. But the only way to hell is to trample over the cross. And God says, what do you make of the death of my son? Oh, about, um, I, I, I don't know how long ago it was now, it was um, oh, 15 years ago. I was playing rugby in Bristol against a club side called Ding's Crusaders and I arrived at the ground in Bristol. I saw my opposite number. He was enormous, this guy. He was built like an outside toilet. I mean, he was a vast man. <clears throat> Do you know, you look at a bloke like that and you think, what does his mother look like? I mean, the bloke was huge. I thought, it's going to be terrible. And, and I looked around and I saw he had number three on his back, but he wasn't warming up. And I, and I looked around and I saw why. He was holding a tiny baby boy in his arms and I thought, well... Maybe he's babysitting, maybe he's, maybe he's not playing, just babysitting. Maybe, maybe, maybe his mother's playing, I didn't know. <laughs> just before kick-off, he handed this baby boy across and he walked onto the field and he ripped me limb from limb. Half-time, he went straight back to baby. Second half, he came back on and he threw me around like straw in the wind. It was incredibly embarrassing. As the final whistle went, that little baby boy was back in the man's arms. There was no question who the father was. There was no question who the son was. I'd like to have seen anyone lay a finger on that little boy. It would have been most amusing to behold the result. <laughs> now, here's the issue. Do you think God loved his son, Jesus Christ, any less than that? Yet he sent him to die that I be forgiven. And there are people, and maybe this man would have been one of them, who say, well, when I stand before God, I'll say I've lived a decent life. Well, why did God send his son to die if living a decent life was enough? I'm a good person. Well, why did God send his son to die if being good's good enough? 
Why did he send him to die unless our wrongdoing is serious? And this man lives as though there's no God and God says to him, what a fool you are. You're a fool. Secondly, as we finish now, he lives as though there is no judgment. Can we see again, it's very striking in the passage as we look down. You see, his framework for living, this guy, <coughs> misses out on what cannot be changed. It cannot, what cannot be changed is verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And it's very striking because you see, verse 19, he made preparations for a long time. You have plenty of good things laid up for many years, but actually, he was fresh out of time. He was rocketed straight into the judgment. And he had such a short-term perspective, and he didn't see the brevity of life. Life gets faster and faster. You know the definition of middle age, you bend down to do up your shoelaces, you say, what else can I do while I'm down here? <laughs> and old age, old age... To my dentures I'm accustomed, to my deafness I'm resigned, I can cope with my bifocals, but oh, I miss my mind. That's old age. <clears throat> and I've got friends, and I, I can think of them, and I've stood at the funeral of some of them. I think of Tim Dickon, or Justin Taylor, or Ben Summers, or Richard van der Horst, or Harry Jevons Fellows, or Simon Duffett, or Frank Covelli. They're just names to you, they were school friends, and they're gone. And I'm saying life is so short. And as a clergyman, you stand at the graveside and you say these words from Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field in Charlotte Square next door. But the wind blows and its place remembers it no more. Life is so short. And this man lived as though there was no judgment. And I'm saying it's a wonderful thing there's a judgment to come. Because how I treat you matters to God and how you treat me matters to God and how we treat the world matters to God. It's a wonderful thing there's a judgment to come. Here is a mother and four children going to the gas chambers. I'm saying it's a wonderful thing there's a judgment to come. And this man stands before God and he says, well, I've lived a decent life and I don't need the death of your son. And God says to him, you're a fool. You're a fool. And the proof that we will be raised and judged is the resurrection, is Easter Day. You see, Jesus got through death and that's the proof the world to come has broken into this world and the coffin is not an exitless box and every one of us will be raised and judged and week six of Christianity Explored, you can check that out. Because actually history tells us we will be judged by the resurrection of Jesus. On the third day he rose again, historical. Crucified under Pontius Pilate, historical. Raised from the dead, historical. Check it out, week six. And as I close now, my question is, well, is your life successful by these standards? By what you've done with Jesus Christ? Because that, if this is all true, is the criteria for a successful life what we've done with Jesus Christ. And have we, through the death of Jesus, been in friendship with God, or have we ignored him? And God hates to call us fools. He, he hates to declare our lives a failure. He longs for us, verse 23, to be rich towards God. He longs for us to be in relationship with him. But we have to 
open ourselves to relationship with Jesus Christ and to the death of Jesus. And so what will we do with it? And failure is being successful at the things that don't matter. So my first plea is, for those of you who've not checked it out, why not come back tomorrow night, there'll be a table, ask any question you want and start looking at Jesus Christ. 6.30 supper, 7.15 start. There'll be one or two others here who will say, well, look, I, I can't come tomorrow, but, but I'd love to read a book. There are the, the books downstairs, or, or actually you can come and get a, a, a little tract off me, but just have a read about the person of Christ. But as I close, I want to just say, there'll be one or two here who will be saying, do you know, Rico, I know this is true. And I have been ignoring Jesus Christ, and I know that he died for me, I know that he rose again, I know the future belongs to him, I know it's his world and I've been ignoring him, and I need to get right with him. Well, if that's, that's you, can I plead with you to become a Christian now? To say, I'm no longer going to put Jesus Christ off. I'm going to come now, because I need to be right with my Creator through the death of his Son. Now, if you don't understand it yet, or you've got hesitations, please don't pray this prayer. But one or two just may like to echo this prayer, to become a Christian through what Christ has done on the cross, and to ask Christ to be your leader. Well, here's a prayer. Let me just uh, uh, say it. And once I've said it, I'll then pray it very slowly. And if it's right for you, why not echo it in your own heart? So here it is. Let me, uh, let me uh, uh, say it. Please bear with me, everybody else. But for one or two, this might be right. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry that I've lived as though there is no God and no judgment. Thank you that Jesus died so I can be forgiven. I now turn away from a life without Christ. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit and help me to live with Jesus Christ as my Master. Well, if that's right for you, why not echo it now in your own heart as I say it very, close, very slowly. Let's, let's pray together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm sorry that I've lived as if there is no God and no judgment. I now turn away from that life. Thank you that Jesus died so I can be forgiven. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit and help me to live with Jesus Christ as my Master. Amen. Well, if you have prayed that prayer, I'd love to see you afterwards just to give you a booklet to take your name so I can pray for you. Thanks very much.